0: Here we go. We heard these words from John 2, uh, 23 through 25. It says, Now when he, that's Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Interesting words, right? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. I was reading an ancient Christian commentary this last week, as one does. And it was written by Augustine in AD 415. And he asked this question uh, why? Why doesn't Jesus entrust himself to those who believe in him? It's a good question, especially because later in the book of John, uh, Jesus is going to say that he plans to make, his, he and the Father plan to make their home in the hearts of his followers, to give himself to, to them in the most intimate way. So how, how could it be that here he says he won't give himself, he won't entrust himself to those who believe? And the answer, Augustine says, is that they have not yet been born again. And they've they've seen his miracles. They've concluded that Jesus must be a man from God. They've they've gotten that far, uh, but they only have a superficial faith, and Jesus really knows what's in their heart. And if we read on, Augustine says, John gives us an example, an example of someone who believes Jesus is from God on account of the signs and the wonders, but has not yet been born again. And The name of that man, who's the example, is a guy named Nicodemus. and It helps us understand what Jesus is doing and why it's the case that he doesn't entrust himself to them. So, we read in John chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs, like we just talked about. Unless God is with him. So that's what Nicodemus says to Jesus, but Jesus says this to Nicodemus Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. 1,300 years before this conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus, the people of Israel, the children of Israel are in the wilderness. They've been delivered out of the Exodus, out of Egypt. And we come to this point of the story around Numbers chapter 20, and things are at an all-time low. The faithlessness of the people are just on display. And this, the senior leadership is beginning to die off. Miriam has just died. The people of Israel They come to Moses and they say, why did you even take us out of Egypt? We wish we were there. We're just going to die of thirst here in the wilderness. And they're just getting ready to be done with Moses and Aaron. And and Moses goes to God and says, God, what do I do? What do I do with these people? What do I do for them? And God says, take your staff and go to this rock over here, speak to it, and water is going to pour forth out of the rock. Well, Moses is just so fed up at this point with the people Then he says, Hear this, you rebels, I'm gonna bring water from the rock. And he takes his staff and smashes it twice in his anger. And water does come out of the rock. But then God says to Moses, Because you disobeyed me, you're not gonna enter into the promised land. They're all, they're all just kind of falling apart at this point. The writer for this, Aaron dies. And then the people come to Moses again and they say, We're so sick and tired of this worthless food. By the way, that's the miraculous manna from heaven that just appears on the ground every single morning, sustaining them for decades. We're tired of this worthless food, and we don't have any water. Water just poured out from a rock like a few days before. And so God, in his wrath, he righteously judges them, and he sends serpents to come against the camp, and they begin biting people. They're, they're poisonous, and people are dying. And they come to Moses and they say, we've sinned, we've sinned against you, we've sinned against God, pray for us that we would be forgiven and that we would be healed. And God says, okay, Moses, build a bronze serpent, lift it up, and when people see the bronze serpent, then they'll be healed. And that's what happens. He lifts, he raises this bronze serpent on a pole. When people see it, their healing and their restoration comes. And again, back in this conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3, Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And in the famous words, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Nicodemus is among those who believe that Jesus is somehow from God on account of the signs that he's seen, kind of like the children of Israel, seeing sign after sign after sign, but not really having believing faith. And Jesus won't entrust himself to Nicodemus, not yet, because Nicodemus is sick and dying in his sins. Nicodemus would have had this story that I just said from Numbers 20 and 21 memorized. It would not have been lost on Nicodemus what Jesus is saying would have said, wow, okay, Jesus is saying, I'm no better than my faithless ancestors dying in the wilderness for their sins. And that was a hard pill for Nicodemus to swallow, but that's exactly what Jesus is saying. And then Jesus goes on in verse 17 and says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus is the the anecdote, but everyone apart from Jesus is already condemned. And here we might ask the question, okay, well, why is the world condemned? Why is the world already condemned? And the answer is because we are all sinners, And why are we all sinners? The answer to that is because we have all broken God's law. Jesus in Matthew, let me go back real quick. Jesus in Matthew uh, 7, I forgot to put this scripture on screen. Matthew 7, 12 said this, we know this is the golden rule. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, when Jesus summarized the law and the prophets, he did so with The first great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Then he said the second is like it, right? Leviticus 19.18, to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, loving your neighbor as yourself, that's basically what the law is talking about. The apostle Paul says the same thing. That's a summary of the law. James says the same thing. Loving Loving your neighbor as yourself, that's what the law is getting at. And Jesus in Matthew 7, 12, with the golden rule, it's basically Leviticus 19, 18. If you do unto others what you would have them do unto you, that's loving your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. Matthew 7, 12, and again Luke 6:31, that's literally what the law is about. That's what the prophets are trying to say. And all the moral commands of the law, and all the moral commands of the prophets, what is Isaiah getting at, what's Jeremiah getting at, what's Moses getting at. They're trying to call us to be a people who treat others as we want them to treat us. That's a summary of the law. But guess what? That summary of the law, it's not a technically original to Jesus. So we read in the, um, in the Old Testament Apocrypha, the book of Tobit, in the Old Testament, Prokpho, we read, never do to another what you do not want done to yourself. It's the golden rule just expressed in the negative. Jesus says, do unto others what you'd wish them to do to you. That's the law. That's the prophets. In Tobit 4.16, it's never do to others what you would not want them to do to you. Now, we might say, okay, well, that's, that makes sense. You know, by the way, the vast majority of Christians on the globe think Tobit is scripture. So, as Protestants, we're in the minority position who don't think this is Scripture. All that to say, we might go, okay, well, yeah, of course this, this revelation would be found in the people of God in the second century B.C. We'd expect that. Well, guess what? The golden rule isn't limited to the people of God. Plato said, I can do to others what I would like them to do to me. In the fourth century B.C., the Chinese philosopher Confucius said, Do not do to others what you would not like yourself. In the Buddhist scriptures, we read, Whatever is disagreeable to yourself, do not do to others. All of this is the golden rule, right? In the Jain scriptures, we read, A man should go about treating all creatures in the world as he himself would be treated. In the Hindu scriptures, we read, One should never do to another which one regards as harmful to one own self. And what's fascinating about this one is not only did they have the golden rule, but they do the very thing Jesus does. It says, this in brief is the rule of Dharma. So in the same way that Jesus summarizes the moral instruction of the law and the prophets by the golden rule, the Hindus summarize the the moral code of their religion as the golden rule. In Judaism, in the Jewish Talmud, it says, what is hateful to yourself, do not do to your fellow man. Again, that is the whole of the Torah, of the law. Judaism agrees with Jesus. That is the summary of the moral code of God, to do unto others as you have them do unto you. Zoroastrianism, the ancient Persian religion, says that nature is only good when it shall not do to another whatever is not good for its own self. Taoism in China says that the good man will regard others' gains as if they were his own and their losses in the same way. And in the Hadith of Islam, words attributed to Muhammad, we read this, No man is a true believer unless he desires for his brother that which he desires for himself. And if you talk to the average secular person walking down the street, the average secular humanist, um, what is their code of ethics, most often you'll hear something in the effect of, I just try to follow the golden rule. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm just, I just try to follow the golden rule. Now, I don't know if you're feeling a little shell-shocked by this. Um, you know, you might hear all this and think, oh, no, after hearing all this, that Jesus' summary of the moral life is found in other religions. It feels like Jesus' moral teaching isn't the unique revelation that I thought it was. Well, let's read Romans 2. Romans 2.14 says, When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. goes on to say this, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So if someone came to Paul and said, Oh no, Paul, like, what are we supposed to do with the fact that the moral teachings of Christ are found in other religions? Paul would say, And? I feel like you're trying to make a point here, so I'll let you continue. Paul would say, oh, that's exactly what I'd expect to find. And in fact, it'd be, it'd be weird if that wasn't the case because God's taken the moral law and he's put it on the hearts of humanity. Humanity knows that we ought to treat others as we would want to be treated. And that's why it's exhibited in all the faith traditions of the world. This is important for us to remember. Remember? And the golden rule isn't the only point of agreement that biblical ethics finds with other moral codes across the world. If you look at the last six of the Ten Commandments, they'll find agreement in most faith traditions across the world. Muslims agree with us that abortion is wrong and marriage should be between a man and a woman. Of course, there's disagreements here and there, but there's a lot of overlap. What does all this overlap in biblical and Christian ethics With the ethics of the world, really mean? It means that God has written His law in the hearts of humanity. And we shouldn't be surprised at all to find kernels of moral truth found in Scripture written on the hearts of those across humanity. In fact, how else could they be already condemned, as John 3 says, if they didn't know the moral law, right? They do know it, and they're condemned because they failed to keep it. So then, who is the Christian? Christian is only that person who is like the poisoned man or woman in their despair, looking up at the bronze serpent to receive their forgiveness and healing. The Christian is the one who looks up at the cross and receives the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. My friends, if all we offer the world is law, then we're offering them what they already have. It must be the gospel that we are giving to the world. John Hick, a religious pluralist, said this. In each case, for both Christian and non-Christian, this, the golden rule, is of course an ideal. The important question is the extent to which the ideal is put into practice. The honest answer of how often is the golden rule put into practice, in each case, is that it has been practiced imperfectly. Each tradition has great saints and great sinners, and, li- and the lives of ordinary believers is a wavering attempt to live up to the ideal. So John Hickey is arguing that the av- and a religious pluralist is someone who believes that all people are basically going to go to heaven if they live an essentially moral life. Um, John Hick is arguing that the average Christian isn't really any better at keeping the golden rule than the average non-Christian, the average Hindu or Jain or Muslim. Christians, of course, can point to Muslim terrorists, but Muslims can point to Christian crusaders. On the other hand, Christians can lift up our Martin Luther King Juniors as moral exemplars, and Hindus can lift up their Mahatma Gandhis. right? John Hick is saying that the average Christian When compared to the average non-Christian, he's saying, I don't find them to be much better or worse than the other. So you Christians shouldn't be allowed to claim any moral superiority. You Christians can't claim that you occupy the moral high ground. And to this we respond, yep. (laughs) That's right. Each day I fail to treat others as I would have them to treat me. I'm more self-absorbed than I care to admit to you guys publicly. <laughs> it's terrifying actually. I'm always expecting others to treat me as I would have them treat me, but regularly failing to offer the same to them. And you know, I'm not as self-aware as I, as I should be, but I'm self-aware enough to know that, apart from the Holy Spirit, even my attempt to, to do good, to be good, it's, it's filled with a mixture of holy and unholy motives. I, I wanna do good for the sake of others, but I also want to do good because I want you to think that I'm a good man. I serve my spouse, but sometimes I do it so that she'll serve me. I have, over the past few years, have been gripped with this desire to live a life of becoming more like Jesus. But even in something as holy as that, I find myself wondering sometimes, am I more in love with the idea of Christ's likeness than I am the person of Christ? And a lot of times, I'm not even sure I have the honest answer. G.K. Chesterston once said this. The truth is that people who worship health cannot remain healthy. When man goes straight, he goes crooked. Our claim is that there is only one human who is ever morally superior. Anyone interested in the moral high ground will find it at the cross of Calvary. There we see the Son of God bleeding, giving his life as a ransom for many, the innocent for the guilty, the healthy for the sick, the remedy for the disease. And even the Nicodemuses, those who've devoted their entire lives to obeying God's law as best they could are counted among the rest, even moral Nicodemus. Chesterton goes on to say, there are many who will smile at the saying, but it is profoundly true to say that the glad and good news brought by the gospel was the news of original sin. The truth is this, my friends, and you say, why is that somehow glad news? Because if you are sick and dying of a venomous snake bite, you need to know that that's why you're dying. If you're, If, we're sick, if the world is sick and dying for their sins, Already condemned, as Jesus says in John 3. We need to know our diagnosis. We need to know that that is our plight. That's our plight. But out of love and mercy, God told Moses, lift up that bronze serpent. And my forgiveness and my my healing, it's going to flow. Guess what? It cost God nothing to lift up that bronze serpent. God didn't give up anything that day. But when the son of God was lifted up on the cross, he gave everything. Why? For love. Love for the world. Love for the world compelled the father to give his only son. Those who believe in him should not perish, as we've heard from our earliest days in the church. That we might enter into eternal life. Eternal life, which does not begin on the day of your death. It begins on the day of your faith. Already you are walking in eternal life. There's a story of a a general in the Far East who would pillage and raid various towns and villages in the province where he was. And um, he was especially cruel to the monks in any village that he came to. And so after a a raid was over, One of his lieutenants came to him and said, Everyone fled the town before, before we arrived, except for one monk who stayed in the monastery and continued about his daily rhythms of prayer and work. The general was furious and said, Bring him to me now. And they dragged this monk to the general's tent. He said, Do you not know who I am? I'm the one who can run you through with a sword and not even think about it. The monk said, Do you not know who I am? I'm the one who can let you run you through with the sword and not even think about it. If you have eternal life, it changes everything. I mean, if if this is actually the case, that we are the people through which eternity already inhabits and life is surging through our veins because Jesus, far better than a bronze serpent, has given you life when you were perishing, there's nothing that can touch us. That's who we are. But Jesus goes on to talk a bit about what this life looks like in John 3, uh, 19 through 21. I'm not sure I actually remember to put this on screen, so do I have, check and see if I have uh, 19 through 21 in there. Sorry, I've been struggling with sickness this week. If I don't, I'll just read it out of an old-fashioned physical Bible. Um, there is a time before screens, if, if we can believe it. Okay, Jesus says, um, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. We talked about that. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Verse 19 says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. Whatever does what is true comes to the light, so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Uh, Scott, last year, shared an article with me about He listed three ways, three reasons that people leave faith in Christ. And I think these are also three reasons that people don't come to faith in Christ. And the first was because of morality, not wanting to repent, not wanting your deeds to be exposed. The second was basically issues with the institutional church for whatever reason. And the other was hurdles, intellectual hurdles to faith. And it's that first one that Jesus is talking about here. That people don't come to the light sometimes because they just don't want to repent. They don't want their deeds to be exposed. Um, last year, I was having coffee with a guy, and um, he was sitting across from me, and he was excited about Jesus, genuinely excited about Jesus, and had discovered um, just how beautiful the the person of Christ was, and he I, he he was captured by it. It was genuine. And, but as we were talking, I, I began to sense, I, don't, I wonder if this guy has ever actually surrendered his life to Christ. So I, I asked him, man, have you ever surrendered your life to Christ? And he said, no, I don't, I don't think I've ever surrendered my life to Christ. I said, okay. He said, I, I think I'm afraid of what that might mean. And I said, well, tell me, tell me what, you, what you mean by that. And he said you know, there's just so many beautiful things in the world, and I'm afraid if I surrender my life to Christ, then I'd have to give up experiencing all those beautiful things. And I said, like what? And he said, well, women. <laughs> um, he said, man, there's just, there's nothing like experiencing a new woman, her personality, um, sleeping with her, and experiencing that, that, that intimacy and that connection and then finding someone else to experience that with. And I said, I hear you. Well, in the Old Testament, there is a word for holy. And a lot of people think that the word is kadosh. A lot of people think that the opposite of the word holy is maybe the word wicked or something like that. And I said, that's not true. The opposite of the word holy in the Old Testament is the word common. So you might have two candlesticks, I said. and one, they're the exact candlestick. One candlestick is in an ancient Israelite's living room. It's a common candlestick. The other candlestick that looks exactly the same is in the tabernacle. That's a holy candlestick. It's set apart for sacred use. It's set apart for God's purposes on the earth. My friend, you were called to a holy life. You were called to a life that is set apart for sacred use, to be a part of the plans and purposes of the divine on planet Earth. Guys, the call to live, actually, let me finish the story. He was so overcome that his body started seizing and shaking under the power and the presence of God. He looked at me and he said, I'm tingling all over. I said, let's let's go sit in the car and see what the Holy Spirit wants to do. And he just sat in the car, overcome by the presence and power of God. And he said, That's the life I want. Guys, the call to a holy life, it should be compelling. Do you really want to live a worldly life? How common. How boring. I mean, you know who, who's a great vision caster? Jesus. Jesus said, If your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. Our problem is we think the world has more to offer us than Jesus. Our problem is we really do think that the way of Jesus is boring and predictable. Nicodemus, Jesus said, the spirit blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you don't know where it's going next or where it came from. So it is with anyone born of the spirit. Guys, the Holy Spirit isn't predictable. You can't prescribe what he's going to do next. Those born of the Spirit hear the sounds of the Spirit's activity. I've heard the sounds of the Spirit's activity this year, blowing through lives and restoring marriages that had no hope. We hear the sounds of the Spirit's activity and we rejoice, don't we? So it is with anyone born of the Spirit. The adventure awaits the one born of the Spirit. That's not Christian hype, that's Jesus saying, This is the life. That is exciting. This is the life that's not predictable. That's the life on offer for the one born of the Holy Spirit. You and I need someone to cast a higher vision for us. Look no further. It's Jesus. And Jesus, you receive your healing. And Jesus, you receive eternal life. And that's not just a ticket to heaven. It's a form of life, as Jesus says in John 3, 19 through 21, where you get to come out of the shadows. And you don't have to be afraid that your works might be exposed. You get to live in the full light of God's grace every day that your works might be seen as clearly carried out in God. I mean, that's freedom. That is freedom. Pastor R.C. Sproul was once asked by a friend, "Um, what's the big idea? of the Christian life. He was asking, "What's the ultimate goal of the Christian life?" And Pastor Sproul said to answer this question, he fell back on an old Latin term. He said, "The big idea of the Christian life is corum Deo. Corum Deo is the ultimate goal of the Christian life." And the corum Deo means this. The phrase literally refers to something that takes place in the presence of or before the face of God. To live coram deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and to the glory of God. I don't have it on screen, but let me read it again. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the life that Jesus is offering in John 3, 20 and 21, to live quorum Deo. When you place your faith in the death of Jesus Christ on your behalf, he atones for your sin, for your guilt, and he, he invites you to live every day in the full light of God's grace I mean, you get to live life with a clear conscience. That's incredible news that many Christians haven't bought into. Will you be perfect? No, you won't. But Jesus lived the perfect life that you should have lived, and he died the guilty death that you should have died. Will you do unto others as you would have them do unto you all the time? No, you won't. But we're learning to do what is true, as Jesus says in John three twenty-one. Coram Deo is what Adam and Eve had, and Coram Deo is what Adam and Eve lost the moment they ate the forbidden fruit. Remember in that story, what happens when they hear God coming? What do they do? They hide. They hide. In Christ, God is drawing you back, drawing me back into a life lived before His eyes. I mean, that's really good news. And then you get to live every day with your works clearly seen, carried out in God. No more hiding. That's how saved you are. No more condemnation. That's how healed you are. That's how thoroughly the poison has been cleansed from your stream. In Pastor Bart's sermon last week, he talked about this idea of learned helplessness that so many of us Christians have. He talked about part of the reason why Jesus didn't entrust himself to them is because they didn't yet have a new heart, right? They hadn't yet been born again. And so many of us, I think, live this way of just kind of, I, I failed, and that's just what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna keep failing. They've learned this helplessness. But we've been given, you've been, you have a new heart. You've been born again by the Spirit of God. I mean, you've been empowered and invited by the shed blood of Jesus to live all your days with your works clearly seen as carried out in God. One of the tragic things that I've seen as a pastor over the years is just how guilt-ridden the conscience is of so many Christians, and it's, it's sad. Um, it just feels so dirty. Always dirty. Sometimes clean, but mostly dirty. In Hebrews Nine fourteen, a verse I've been meditating on recently. It says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I mean, look at the Trinity at work. You have the, the Son of God offering his perfect, spotless blood The eternal spirit, the spirit who has no beginning and no end, is escorting the blood of Jesus up to the Father, and it's powerful enough to cleanse the conscience of any believer. The Father knows it. The Son knows it. The spirit knows it. Do you know it? Are you living a life with a clear conscience before God? You get to live that way, not because you're in some denial over your guilt and sin, but because it's, it's been that healed, that forgiven, that atoned for, and not just the sins of your past, not just the sins that you committed before coming to Christ, but the sins you'll commit this week, and the sins you'll commit after that. If I can, I want to go invite the worship team to come forward, and I also want to go and just invite some ministry teams to come here to the front, if you'll move quickly. You know, my Christian life just changed when I became convinced of, of this truth. And I'm, I'm ashamed to say that it took I was well into my Christian life before, before I understood this. Um, when I began to see what the gospel actually offers me, the eternal life that is mine now, not the eternal life that I get when I die, but the eternal life I receive on the day of my faith, I just want to ask you: Is your conscience clean? The blood of Jesus cleanses your conscience of dead works. To serve the living God, to live so that all your works can be clearly seen and carried out in God, you get to live coram Deo, all your days before Him, because of Jesus. If you hear today and you're saying, I'm not sure I've come to Christ and received him as my Savior. I want to invite you forward to come and receive prayer for Jesus. And if you're here today and you're just saying, I want, to, I want to live more before the eyes of God. I want to take hold of this truth that my conscience is clear and I can just live before the eyes of God all my days in the full light of his grace. grace just come forward and receive prayer. And let's just stand as we go back into worship before the Lord.